but right now we're doing Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin whose image and inscription, whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Could we throw the slides up on the projector? Thank you. <laughs> so one of the uh, things that's always fun is listening to little kids as their language develops. I uh, heard a couple of kids one day playing and trying to figure out how things work. Um, and one child was trying to tell the other child what to do, but child two would have none of it. and turned around and said, you're not the boss of me. Still trying to figure out that word order and possessive and all that sort of stuff, but had the social ladder figured out. And working out who's the boss in any given group or social situation is one of the sets of skills we need in order to navigate life, isn't it? Um, you know, we need to know who's in charge in a place. For some people, figuring it out is uh, knowing how to, who do I have to placate to maintain peace? For others, it's like, who do I have to climb over to get to the top? But in terms of social ladders, the Pharisees and the Herodians held very different places. Uh, and the temporary alliance they made to try and trap Jesus is actually quite bizarre because they hated each other. Uh, the Pharisees were more or less middle class, well-respected religious leaders who had a high standing in the community. I know we're down on the Pharisees nowadays because of the Gospels, but in their day, they were well regarded by the people. The Herodians, on the other hand, were sort of the elite political class. They were wealthy uh, and they enjoyed all the power that goes with political connections and uh, full of religious compromise as well. But, you know, politics sometimes forges strange alliances and the two groups were united in their opposition to Jesus. And so by coming together to pose this question to Jesus, they're trying to put him in an impossible bind. Whatever he says is going to bring serious consequences on him, or so they think. So the Pharisees, like everyone else, or most other people, they, they paid their taxes, but they really resented it. it. It wasn't only financially onerous, and Rome did tax people heavily, but it was an affront to the idea that God was sovereign over Israel. These were his people. And Jesus was seen as a man of the people. And uh, if he said that it was permissible to pay taxes to Caesar, to Rome, he'd be seen as spiritually compromising and politically siding with Rome. It would completely trash his reputation among the people and uh, kill the movement he had started. 
On the other hand, if he sided with the Pharisees and the people and said that they should not pay taxes to Caesar, well, that's going to get him into a spot of bother with the Herodians. They could have him arrested for sedition and stirring up trouble with the people. And so Jesus' reply is actually really clever. The King James Version has uh, made the, the phrase famous, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. In these verses, Jesus is actually playing on his inquisitor's words. Their question can be translated, is it permissible to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus replies back, uh, almost literally, pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Do we pay Caesar? Pay back to Caesar. And uh, so as is clear from the text, could I, thank you, uh, could um, the, the, you can see up on the slide there, the denarius that he asked for, it was about a day's wage, it had a picture of Caesar on it, in this case Tiberius, who was in power when Jesus uh, was in ministry. And the idea was that he's got his picture stamped on the coin, therefore he owes, owns the coins in some way. And still today, uh, you know, the government controls legal tender, right? Uh, we implicitly agree to the government's right to regulate and tax our finances when we use money. And of course, then there are also benefits we get from the government. Uh, and, you know, we may not like paying taxes, especially taxes we consider unfair or when it goes to things we don't like. But even in Jesus' day, they got benefits from the government. Uh, they government built roads, uh, public facilities. There was the Roman peace that had been imposed. And although people like the Jews didn't like it, it did make the empire a much safer place. And so taxes were a way of paying back to the government uh, something for those services. But Jesus then adds, and, and the implication is, he says, pay back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. Or we could say, reading in that blank, pay back the things that are God to God. For the Jews, Rome wasn't the only game in town, any Jew would know that whatever is owed to Rome, God has a greater claim because Israel was his people. And so when Jesus said, pay back to Caesar, that would have made the Herodians smile and the Pharisees squirm. And when he said, pay back to God, he would have got hearty agreement from the Pharisees and uh, made the Herodians very uncomfortable. Today, we take the separation of church and state for granted, but that hasn't always been the case. In the ancient world, there actually was no separation. So you can see on the second coin, uh, Maxim Pontus or something like that, Pontiff, uh, which means chief priest. That was what the emperor was. He was the chief priest of the Roman religion. And not only that, he was worshipped as semi-divine. In medieval times, there was some sort of separation of powers in Europe, but still a very close relationship between the church and the crown. And even today, when 
Anyone see King Charles's coronation last year? And one of the things King Charles promised to do in his coronation was to defend the Protestant faith. As opposed to Australia, where in our constitution, the Commonwealth government is very limited in its powers regarding religion. Although, interestingly, that doesn't apply to the states. So the states can legislate for religion, but the Commonwealth can't. So it's clear when we look at Jesus' words that God grants civil authorities power in the temporal realm. Pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Christians are obliged to submit to that authority. So at the very least, the government has the power to regulate the economy, raise taxes and and so on. And of course, this is only one passage in the Bible that touches on this matter of what we would call church-state relations. Uh, In Romans, Paul also says that the state carries the sword by God's authority to punish and restrain evil. However, when Jesus says to give to God what is his, he's telling us that although the government has authority, it does not have total authority, which Rome would have wanted to argue with. There is a higher power to which every individual is accountable. And by extension, so is the state. And if we read the Old Testament, it's very clear that God was sovereign over every nation. Uh, They rise and fall according to his will to bring about his purposes, whether they recognize him or not. So the coin Jesus asked for had Caesar's likeness and so was Caesar's domain, but a lot of commentators from ancient time till now have noted that in Genesis chapter 1, humans have God's likeness imprinted on our hearts. We're made in God's image. So if we owe the government taxes because the king's image is on coinage, how much more do we owe God whose image is stamped on our hearts? Jesus and the whole Bible make it clear that the authority the state has authority over people, including God's people in the temporal realm, but also that the state and earthly rulers are ultimately accountable to God. And in giving to God what is God's, there may be times we need to disobey the state in order to obey God. And arguably, as with the Australian Commonwealth, the government has no or, or very little authority in the spiritual realm. So we sort of see this principle in the military. Um, a, a soldier is required to obey any lawful command his superior officer gives him. But both the soldier and his superior know they are subject to higher authorities. There's a chain of command uh, and the whole military is subject to the law of the land, usually, unless things go very wrong. And what's more is outside of martial law or wartime, A soldier can't tell you what to do. If a soldier comes up and tells you anything, he's got no more authority than anyone else. Police can, but a soldier can't. And so if a soldier tries to tell you what to do, you can tell him where to go. Unless he's carrying a big gun and then, I don't know. Anyway, so in the same way, the individual 
is only obliged to obey the state insofar as the state does not contradict God's law. Now, this is kind of interesting when you think about where this leaves atheists. We have a higher authority to call on. If you do not believe in that higher authority, then the state is all that there is. And uh, you can try to use some tricky philosophy, but ultimately I think you're out of luck. That's why fascism and communism and dictatorships love atheism and often hate religion because it makes the state everything. Atheism does. Well, what does this mean for us in the 21st century? Well, I think, as I've said, that most of the time we should submit to the state. And most of the time, at this point in history at least, we can usually do so with a clear conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to agree to every policy or or be subservient. We are blessed to live in a democracy And that allows us to voice our political differences and our disapproval of government, to debate policy and so on. But the reality is we do gain many benefits from living in a stable democracy and a prosperous country. And so, yes, we should pay our taxes and we should aim to be good, law-abiding citizens. Sometimes people ask, well, what if we weren't in a democracy? What happens if, uh, you know, in... 20 years we find ourselves somehow in a dictatorship or someone's taken us over or what. Jesus was speaking into a situation where it wasn't democratic. Israel had been taken over by the Romans against their will. And still he says, render unto Caesar, render unto the empire that you hate so much. And so this principle of submission to the government still holds. But we need to always remember that submission to the state is not total. And I want to say submission to the culture as well. As values shift and we find ourselves, many of us as Christians, isolated from the values of society. You know, someone said that one person in God is still a majority. Now, we have to walk humbly. But the state and the culture is subject to God even if they don't recognize him. And so where the state or the society in general demands a higher loyalty to it than to God, be that through our adherence and agreement to ideology or values and morals that the Bible speaks against or practices we're meant to perform in some way. As God's people, we have a duty to God to resist, generally using principles of non-violence. Because we need to remember that in this situation as well, the early church really did have to resist. Part of the requirement of living in the Roman Empire was actually worshipping Caesar. You had to front up to a temple and sprinkle some incense uh, at different times and places. And early Christians, this was a large part reason for their uh, persecution was because they refused. Jordan Peterson has said something like, if you remove God from the picture, then uh, people start to confuse what belongs to God and what belongs to the state. By the same token, um, sometimes we find ourselves in situations, and in history this is a case, where the church starts to gain temporal power. 
and it starts to act just as poorly as any secular government can. Now, I think Christians can be involved in politics. We can carefully bring and speak Christian values into the public sphere. I think in a democracy where everyone has a voice, everyone has a right to do that, even if it's not popular. Maybe there's a place for Christian parties, but you know, history does not look kindly on the church when the church herself has too much power and is involved in politics. Speaking as the church, not just Christians involved in politics. Now, of course, we're all going to have different opinions about where the line between the separ- or the line of separation between church and state lies. If you go to an Amish community in America, they don't participate in civil government or civil society much at all. And I, I think that's probably a bit extreme. On the other hand, in Australia, the Victorian government has outlawed prayer about certain topics, even in churches and even in private. Now, it doesn't matter what the topic is. I think that is clearly an overreach. And I know pastors who have said they have to practice civil disobedience in that regard. There are a raft of issues where freedom of speech and freedom of conscience, our our views on those will differ. And we need to remember in Australia, we're not America with its First Amendment that guarantees freedom of religion and freedom of speech. We do not have that in Australia. But the point is, and we need to keep this in mind to help us think through these issues, we submit to the state because God has put it in authority. But the state itself is subject to God and its authority over us is limited. But, you know, I think for most of us, the challenge actually lies elsewhere. The challenge is this. Do we pay back to God what is his? We owe him our loyalty, our worship, and our very lives. And in a society that increasingly marginalises God and religion and denies that they have a place in the public sphere, this can be really challenging for us as Christians and, and for all religious people, actually. But for those who, of us who are Christian, we have been bought by the blood of Christ. We owe God everything, not just as creator, which all people owe him worship for, but as our saviour. We have been bought with a price and we have said yes. But I think this also is a gift for us, but a gift from the church to society. You see, it gives us the ability, it gives us a strong ground on which to call out government overreach. As I said, if you're an atheist, you you might have philosophical reasons and so on. And of course, you know, the American system, uh, there were all sorts of people contributed to that. Our society, Western society, is very much grounded in Christian thought, but not only Christian thought. And so you can bring in philosophies and so on, but the reality is ultimately there is no sort of anything out there beyond us if you don't believe in God. Whereas for us as Christians, it's very much our worldview is grounded in the spiritual realm, that God is real, God does have authority. 
And so this gives us a moral and spiritual freedom even when governments become oppressive. And many Christians who have been persecuted, put in prison or tortured for their faith will attest to this. They have a freedom. They're locked up, but they're free. But this is good news, isn't it? That there is a moral limit, not just to government, but any human power. And that there is a higher power that holds governments and people to account. That there is a God who is worthy of our whole lives and who gives our lives meaning and hope beyond this temporal and beyond this political realm. And we owe him our lives, our worship, our loyalty, our obedience. Let's pray.